And whenever you're ready, we're back with Panoramic Outdoors, episode 79. Uh, we got around the table today, Sheldon Grant. Say hello, Sheldon. Hello, everyone. Uh, Chase Drylick. Say hi, Chase. Howdy, howdy. And uh, Tristan here. We're all tuning in from our own respective homes. Um, and on the podcast today, we have an ethicist, uh, maybe someone who might have, someone who studies ethics, we'll say, uh, but also with a focus on biology, the uh, prominent blogger, and uh, I don't know if I'd say influencer, but maybe a thinker, we'll say. Uh, Paul McCartney joins us to talk about trophy hunting. Um, really excited about the episode. I thought it came out really well and helps highlight some of the main tensions that we have in modern society with hunting today. Um, Chase, you were in and on with on it with me. Like, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I I love the conversations we had with Paul, and it really you know expanded uh, my thought process around. Uh, not only the conversations about trophy hunting, but just conversations hunters should have in general. I know um, the previous episode here, we had uh, Dave Salmoni on. And uh, so it's almost like uh, Dave coming at his perspective as non-hunter and Paul really reinforcing, you know, having that open dialogue with, with everyone uh, coming from the the hunter uh, angle. And... Um, I think it's a great conversation. Uh, Paul's Paul's a, a phenomenal person and puts great thought into uh, everything he does and everything he does for the for the outdoor world. So, um, yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll get you into the deep dive on Paul. Um, if you want to dive even deeper, you can check out his blog, Landscapes and Letters at landscapesandletters.com. And that deals all kinds of uh, interesting hunting issues and ethics and all the things that surround them. So we'll uh, we'll get into that in a bit. But uh, Sheldon, out in Brandon, what's going on? Anything new? Man, I got so much I could talk to you about. It's like I haven't talked to you guys forever. Um, this podcast episode, I was put on the bench. I was sitting here just like waiting, just waiting to get into the lineup. But nobody called <laughs> in sick, sick for that episode. So I... I had to put the mic away for that night, but uh, you were yeah, on the taxi been, squad. Yeah, I was on the taxi squad, exactly. So I've been just kind of waiting around, and then, uh, yeah. Other than that, I've been doing a, a lot of different uh, work around the house and uh, with my my actual career. Um, the other thing too, I've been doing a lot of is uh, doing some Instagram work, talking to a lot of uh, followers and a lot of people that follow us and like our stuff, you know. And we started talking to this guy. Um, he's another. Manitoban that does a lot of barbecuing and smoking I believe his handles pop I think it's poplar smoke barbecue and so we started talking to him and started talking about how we should get together and do maybe a cook-off which then obviously makes me start thinking about summertime and shooting bows and doing all that fun stuff and uh, so I really think that what we should do is get the pit barrel going get this guy out you know, cook up some ribs, maybe have a few people over and, and you know, shoot some bows and have a little bit of a cook-off. Um, I'm very excited about it because Pippa Barbecue is a huge supporter of Panoramic Outdoors. They've been supporting us for over a year now, and we've been using them like crazy. So to take that piece of equipment and put it up to the test against somebody else, and I think he runs a green egg, actually, will be quite interesting to see how the meat turns out. So if anyone's looking to get into Pippa or want to know what I'm talking about, Go to www.pitbarrelcooker.com. On there, you can see the full lineup, all their accessories, and every availability 
uh, to where you can buy them not only in Canada but in the U.S., which they also have free shipping. So that's www.pitbarrelcooker.com. But, yeah, that's what I've been up to. Actually, I went on a drive today, too. Sorry for rumbling on, but I haven't talked all night. You guys put me on the bench, so finally it's my time to shine. Um, I was driving around looking at some jobs, and I actually came across a pheasant. No, actually, I was driving down the road, and I'm like, oh, my God, look at that. There's a mallard standing on the road. Is this so too like, truth and a lie? No, no, no. This is <laughs> this is all truth. So then I'm driving down the road, and I, I'm like, oh, my God, there's a mallard standing on the road. And I thought it was weird, but I got up to it, and it was a, it was a pheasant kind of looking straight onto me. So then he turned and, like, ripped into the grass, and I couldn't freaking find him. I was trying to get a good picture of him. Couldn't find him. So I'm like, God damn it. So I went around the corner, you know, a couple miles later. Well, there's another pheasant standing on the road. So this one, I get right up to it. And it's like, as soon as I get close, he just rips off into the bush. So now I'm getting pretty frustrated. I'm like, I want to get a picture of one of these things. And then like an hour later, I'm driving down the road, getting actually close to Brandon. Sure as shit, there's another pheasant standing on the road. And I finally got a picture of him. But he's kind of far away, but it was pretty cool to see. I haven't seen that many in a long time. So spring, spring's here, I think. That's for sure. That's wild. I don't know if I've ever seen that many pheasants in Manitoba ever. Never mind in one time. So that's yeah. that's that's kind of cool. Yeah, um, that was a cool little drive. And I I I'm really excited to think about the the bowls and barbecue scenario too. That's uh that's got me just giddy thinking about the opportunity there to relax a little, shoot a little bow, get some reps in, and go check the the ribs in between reps kind of scenario. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that would be super fun. It reminds me of that time we shot bows. I think it was us three and uh, Jamie. Yeah. And then I, I believe, I think Josh came out after. This was before COVID, obviously. And we had like a fire and we cooked up some spring rolls and a bunch of other stuff. And man, that was just a, such a great Saturday afternoon. Um, and like, yeah, and then had a bonfire at night. Like it was just one of those perfect days. So I'm, I'm really excited for the warm weather and that to happen. Here's an idea for the barbecue off. I think you can probably get yourself three or maybe even four pit barrels for the cost of a green egg. So maybe we could try cooking with four pit barrels at the same time to see <laughs> just just how much food we can pump out. Yeah, no kidding. But yeah, if you want to check out Pit Barrel, make sure you uh, look for them online at pitbarrelcooker.com. And if you want, if you're near Winnipeg, you can check them out at Lux Barbecue as well. Oh, yeah, that's right. Lux Barbecue. Free ad for them. Bills in the mail. Chase, what are you doing over there smiling at us? <laughs> Not much. Not much, man. Just just enjoying enjoying the conversation and enjoying the uh, the company uh, we're keeping tonight. In your downtown loft? Yeah, I don't know why that, that thing keeps on popping up. So uh, whoever can help me out on my Skype, I, I keep on getting like the, the, the loft background for my... <laughs> for my uh photo here for my video and uh even when i change it i don't know what's going on anyways uh yeah i just guess uh kind of transition time for me right now end of the ice season pretty much uh and then uh just trying to figure out you know what to pick up next if it's going to be a turkey call or if uh i should grab the goose call and try and head out for uh end of the season hunt here or or what but uh yeah just tapped a bunch of maple trees today, me and my buddy Chris. That's exciting. We caught like, uh, well, on, on my property here, we probably have, uh, I don't know, 12 or 15 trees tapped. So um, hopefully we'll be uh, flooding in the, the maple syrup right away. So how long do you need them? Like how long do you tap them for? 
And uh, is there like anything like do you know of like by law like do you got to like take them out at a certain time or anything? Do you know of? I don't think there's any law, but but uh, you kind of it really relies a lot on uh, temperature fluctuations and uh, whether the trees start budding or not. So if they if they begin to bud, the the sap becomes like uh, sour or woody, and uh, so we want to remove the taps by then. But the uh, the from what I've been told, I'm I'm not that experienced in this yet. I, I I've done it a couple times before at a smaller scale, but um, the the sap really flows when temperatures go below freezing at night and go above freezing during the day so like that i think that like five to 10 or 15 degrees range during the day um but not on windy days either apparently so hmm. there, there seems to be like a short window here that we have here in manitoba ontario they seem to have a, a lengthier season uh because that that they stay in that temperature range for longer but here you get like a week to two weeks apparently to really capitalize on that uh that flow don't make the will bergman error what do you know the will bergman error i don't know what you're talking about no he he tried cooking his uh his syrup over the or he, i guess it would be the sap he tried cooking the sap over the fire last year and he used like an aluminum pot oh. and it landed up burning through the pot and he lost all his sap into right. the fire that's a yeah. good one that suck yeah so I Use a cast pot is that the lesson there. Yeah. Or I might have to use a big uh, stainless one you got there. Another lesson that I watched actually on TikTok um, is what you're supposed to do after you're done tapping a tree is cut a branch off, shave it down, and then plug the hole with the same branch from the same tree. Did you know that, Chase? I didn't, no. And I'm going to do that this year now. And if anybody knows anything about this uh, new endeavor that Chase is doing, give us an email or send us a DM. We'd like to hear your experiences for sure send so some, we can start learning this stuff. Send some hot tips in. Totally. And we went uh, we went fishing to West Hawk last weekend and didn't get a bite. But what a day on the ice it was. It was sunny and there was barely any wind. Uh, brought Willie out and uh, he made a couple friends out on the ice and they played on Peanut Island for about four hours straight. I've never seen him crash that hard when he got home, but he <laughs> uh, he laid out like an accordion and just didn't get back up. That's awesome. Yeah. Speaking of ice fishing, I got a little story for you guys. So after the last episode, when you guys were talking about that, uh, your, your auger, what do you guys have in, again, an Eskimo like 10 inch? Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. got a broken throttle cable, and you guys are fiddle-fucking around with it all the time. So anyways, uh, one of our, uh, like a guy that listens to the show all the time, and um, yeah, he's he's a well, kind of a local from Nipah, buddy of mine. He emails me and tells me that they're up at Nestle Lake Lodge, which is, I believe, by Flint Flon, and they're ice fishing. And I think their ice auger got stuck in the ice. And so his old man was, like, trying to, like like, get it out, obviously. And somebody either hit the throttle or maybe the old man hit the throttle. But either way, it took off on them and it tore this guy's thumb right off his hand. He had to be, like, rushed to Winnipeg to get it reattached. And now he's got, like, a scheduled, like, I don't know, eight to ten surgeries to get, you know, try to get the full function of his thumb back. So it really made me start to think about that and about you guys. Maybe you guys should just get that fixed because... Uh, being outside, you can never be too safe. So oh, yeah. get that freaking thing fixed before next year, fellas. It's dangerous. That's not the first thumb-ripping story we have about uh, 
ice augers either. A guy uh, I know up in Churchill, his his wife tried uh, somehow grabbed the uh, the uh, auger flight when it was in rotation and uh, ripped her thumb off as well. So <laughs> not funny, but but uh, I I think. You know, when you think about it, I think, uh, I guess it could get jammed in there, but wearing a glove in those dangerous situations, maybe not a good idea because you get uh, pinched and wrapped up in the, in, uh, in something. Well, it's, it's a lot of those, it's a lot of those little things that you don't really think about. And it always, you know, uh, it's bringing me back to even more depth in this, in this little story is like having first aid kits, even no matter what it is, like have it with you at all times, because you don't think of the things and. Um, with my line of work, like one of the things that we always get told is like, for me, I don't, it doesn't matter for me, but like, don't wear wedding rings when working because we climb poles all the time, right? It's an easy way to skin your finger right off the bone kind of idea. And all those little things you don't think about when you're outside, when you're, you know, there's not the amenity of a hospital or an ambulance right around the corner. I mean, you got to do all the little things to stay safe, I guess. Totally. My my first aid kit's under the rear seat in my truck. So if you guys are ever out with me and I'm screaming about my thumb being gone, that's where my first aid kit is. Don't do you have any? Do you have any like homemade ones, or is we, it just like one bought from the store? No, this is homemade. It's in it's in a military can, and I I made right. it up out of like a bunch of supplies and stuff like that. So it's very nice. much homemade. Yeah. Do you have uh, and, some oh, some surgical uh, appendage reattachment charts in there for uh, emergency reattachments? I was just going to pour whiskey on it and stick it back in its spot and then just hope for the best. But um, who knows? Who knows how that stuff goes? But you guys are asking me too many questions. The real deal here is I got five burners for you, and uh, you're both going to be on the hot seat here. And uh, I guess you guys can take turns on who goes first. But are you ready for the panoramic five burning questions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do we got to answer like Jeopardy or no? No. No, oh, okay. you gotta cool. gotta answer quickly though, or at least somewhat quickly. Number question number one: What is a underrated song or album, or even artist? Something that's musically underrated. Um, I'll take this one. Um, so well, there's a whole bunch, but I I like Fleetwood Mac. I guess it's been kind of on the rise since that TikTok uh, TikTok video. I'm like a TikTok phenom lately, man. Don't laugh at me. I'm laughing. Uh, Fleetwood Mac. Who's ever heard of Fleetwood Mac? <laughs> I feel like they're one of the most popular bands in the 70s. No, absolutely. But what I'm saying is that, like, they're almost like, you know, like a lot of times when you're listening to old classic music now, especially in like this generation and stuff, it's always like ACDC, Metallica, and all these, like, I don't know, kind of like hard uh, type classic rock songs. And then someone hears that Fleetwood Mac song, whatever, whatever it may be. And it's just like, Oh wow. Who's this? And you're like, Oh, this is like one of the best bands from the seventies. That's where I was going with that. So it might be a little confusing, but oh, no, that's, that gonna, that's gonna be my answer. Okay, cool. Chase, did you have one or were, or are we sticking with Fleetwood Mac? Uh, yeah, you better pass on me for this one right now. We'll stick with okay. Fleetwood Mac. Question number two, something in life that is harder than you think. Uh, getting a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be Stay too skinny. I got too many of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll second the the well, the the staying skinny or staying staying uh, under the dad bod phase. Staying uh, taking care of two kids is a is a big one for me. Yeah, get a puppy. They said it'd be easy. They said too. So yeah, quite a bit out there. 
You definitely yeah, jumped Tristan, in two feet. Took, like, yeah, you kind of took everything right by the horns and ran with it there. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, sometimes the horns present themselves and you just got to hold on. And it feels like that, uh, what's that Spanish uh, tradition there where they run just, with the bulls? Yeah, we're running with the bulls. Um, okay. What's something you never go a field without? Oh man, these are uh, these are tough. It's tough being on the other side of these questions. Now I know what our guests feel like sometimes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, empathy goes a long way. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, you know, never going without a knife. Uh, but if I want to really get uh, a little more deep in that, just like a, a good multi-tool leatherman. I've I've got a deer with leatherman before, and and uh, it's done the job. But I've before I owned the leatherman, I've never really like found a use for it but once you have one you're like oh shit i got my leatherman i'm gonna use it for this use it for that use it for this use it for that so it does come in handy quite a bit when you do have them uh, my i got a two-part answer mine would be probably and it it's not only a field but it's like anytime i jump in my pickup for a scout it's anytime i go driving for work whatever i always have to have a pair of binoculars and if i don't have i feel like i'm missing out on an opportunity of seeing something um and then not only that but like i have a, like a binocular case and in there, I always keep like one of those like um, eyeglass um, cleaner, like not the spray, but just like the, I don't even know what it's called, but like a little piece of fabric basically that can yeah. clean binoculars or glasses or scopes or whatever. I always keep a piece of that in my uh, binocular pack there. Smart, smart. Yeah, I saw Chase snap his Leatherman. I, uh, his Leatherman saw in half on a deer brisket this past fall, so... Um, he definitely uses and abuses that thing at at every whim. Yeah, even I though totally. I had, even though I had a bone saw in my back, and I told him that. <laughs> had a bone saw this whole time. Well, yeah, we're deer hunting. Um, I really want to get a Leatherman. I've never had one, and I always, always when we go out with Chase, is like, "Hey, man, throw me your Leatherman." I just, I need a multi-tool. I guess I shouldn't say Leatherman, but I need a multi-tool. Absolutely. I'm not going to be surprised if that thing shows up in your pack one day, right next to. Uh... One of my two headlamps that I think you now have. <laughs> two headlamps, easy. <laughs> and a couple of elk calls. <laughs> Moving on. So if you had one last meal on this earth, what would it be and what would you wash it down with? You guys should be familiar with this one. So This is like one of my ongoing Tinder questions. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, my answer, I'm going to do it really quick because I know it right off the bat, but Mine is like a steak, a really well done beef, or not well done, but a real like well cooked beef steak, like medium rare to rare. I'm going to have a Caesar salad with that, probably some progies with bacon and onions and asparagus and a big glass of cold milk. If I can't have milk, it'd probably be a beer of some sort. And um, yeah, that's about it. I'm I'm going a little bit uh, crazy with this one, but I'm going to do like an elk tenderloin and a little serpent turf. So whether that's uh some walleye or barbecued trout or you know uh some shrimp or wild salmon uh caught and then uh a couple couple veg on the side and then uh wash that down with a bottle of wine a bottle of wine (laughs) (laughs) i just saw him pull the cork with his teeth (laughs) i guess if you're gonna go you might as well go. what's yours tristan yeah oh come on i'm um yeah elk tenderloin would be there probably some of those prawns we caught out west with andrew there just fantastic 
um, really good bourbon, uh, meat, um, maybe some wild rice, we'll say. And uh, for veggies, garden beans. Garden beans. Garden beans. Yeah. Got to be oh, yeah. garden, man. Okay. Got to be garden. Last question of the the five burners here is uh, if you could have a combo with anyone, alive or dead, who would that conversation be with? Man. Not you two, obviously. Um, I'll go since Chase is still thinking here, I think. Unless you got one lined up, Chase. Uh, the Skype background is blurry, so you can tell the wheels are turning. Yeah. <laughs> Smoke coming out of my ears. Uh, I got one, yeah. I think, you know, shit, there's so many good good, good options to go with here. But I think I, I would like to go back and talk to, like, Aldo Leopold and just sit on his porch and have a cup of coffee or a glass of whiskey with him and, and get into some of those conversations with that dude. I think mine would be just for the sentimental thing. Probably my uh, my my grandfather on my dad's side. Um, I was really young when he passed away, and I, and he has a history of of farming the outdoors. Um, and I just I know my dad and all my uncles have a lot of like outdoor experience, which I'm sure they learned from him and his brothers. So it would be cool to sit back and talk to with him, or even like someone in the extended family from back in the day. My dad was the youngest of a, of a huge family, right? So. When I was young, his parents both died when I was young, so I never really got to that relationship. But if it was someone like kind of, you know, um, like famous or semi-famous or any of that sort, I think it would be a really, really crazy conversation to have, you know, with with somebody that was like in the military or in the war with just the Canadian or American or whatever it may be or any country, just to like hear those stories, how they were like World War One stories kind of thing, where they're kind of lost. And not I'm not going to say lost now, but you just don't hear them firsthand. I think it would be cool to sit down and smoke a cigarette with a vet and have a glass of whiskey or a warm beer and just shoot the shit, you know? Head on down to the Legion, take your hat off. Yeah, exactly. Tristan, what's your answer for that? Ooh, man, there's so many interesting people that I, I've followed in history. And, um, again, another tough question. There's... Um, you, know, you have your conservation his, uh, heroes that you your thinkers. If I if I had to boil it down to someone, who would it be? Yikes! Um, maybe Levon Helm, just because it's such a cool m- musician, but also sounded like just a really cool cat from Arkansas. Um, played his life or lived his life playing the road as a musician, and uh, never seemed to depart from. Uh, I guess you could take the boy out of Arkansas, but you can't take the Arkansas out of the boy kind of scenario here. And uh, it would be really cool just to uh, hear stories of him. And he would just treat people with just like this high, everyone he got treated the same with the same level of respect, they said. So like, it, it, I think it'd just be cool to to have a, a conversation with him and pick his brain. He's gone though, but uh, yeah, would have been cool. Amazing. Well, um, a bit of a prediction of mine, but I think... Uh... Um, Paul McCartney here, who's our next guest on the episode here, is uh, definitely going to be one of those fellows that that uh, we're going to be interested in having future conversations with, but potentially somebody that, that's going to have a great influence on the outdoor world here um, and can see him as a common, common name coming up in these conversations for uh, not only us, but other outdoors folks out there. 
Yeah, I love it, man. Paul McCartney, big ideas, small ideas. Check him out on his blog, like I said. And uh, without further ado, enjoy the episode here. And today we got Paul McCartney on the show. Paul's a avid blogger writing on landscapes and letters and has a PhD in environmental sciences. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be on. Awesome. Where are you where are you calling in from today, Paul? I'm in St. John's, Newfoundland. Yeah, so uh furthest east we can go and on that additional half hour time zone that we have out here. So. Cool. Yeah, we have to stagger the uh the approach that we do virtually here, but that's all good. It's uh change of pace is good for us. Um so we'll we'll have lots to talk about between the environmental studies and your blog. Um but before we get rolling, we do this thing called five burning questions. And really what it is, is just a chance for us to get a feel for our guests and maybe our listeners to get to know a little bit more about you. So you're ready? They, they just get shot at you, you answer them as they come. No right or wrong answer unless you, uh, unless you don't like the same brand as a beer as me. Then you're in trouble. I'll be brutally honest, unapologetic. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. Okay, question number one. What is the most... I know you. I know you're a hunter. So, what's the most underrated wild game dish? Oh man, uh, squirrel. Squirrel, eh? Any any particular way, or uh, just uh, over the fire? Well, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say I, they're the most underrated wild game species. Yeah. But people who eat squirrel know that they are the top wild game dish. Premium. So, I think that that's what I mean is that they're underrated species. But uh, in terms of top way, uh, yeah, I bread them and fry them like KFC and I just nice. don't feel guilty at all about eating about enjoying like basically chicken like fried chicken you know damn that's man. funny I uh <clears throat> I was cruising through your uh some of your your blog articles there and I seen you had one on uh on squirrels and uh I made a mental note to go and check that out because I, I've been really interested in doing some squirrel hunting around here but I, I'm not too sure we're like a an a spot is that we got a bunch of like red squirrels cruising around our property here but like i want to get into some like grays and maybe some fox squirrels. i don't know if, how many fox squirrels we have in this area but i know there's some uh some better populations of gray squirrels around so seeing that and hearing what you just said is going to uh help kind of oh, get the ball rolling on that it's great i've never had fox squirrel but apparently that's the sort of cream of the crop in terms of i've only ever had uh eastern gray squirrel um but apparently fox squirrel is, yeah, it's where it's, that's the good stuff. Interesting. Have you, have you served squirrel to anyone and been like, hey, I come have. check? I have. And uh, it's, um, I, yeah, so I one time um, was, we were moving, when we were moving to Labrador, uh, I had to get, we had to eat a bunch of different wild games that we had sort of in the freezer that, um, you know, you keep it, you, you keep thinking you're going to say something for a special occasion. And before you know it, you've got stuff that's, that's getting old and you've got piles of stuff in there so i um hosted i had a bunch of friends over and cooked i, I think i cooked them something like eight different species of wild game and did everything did it like sort of cave person style over the fire in the backyard right through to like i made a um a stout beer maple glaze for some duck anyway i saved the squirrel to the end um because i knew that it would be this little bit of kind of juxtaposition at the end where everyone would think like oh we've had moose and and duck and venison and all this stuff and, and Arctic char and everything. And then here's this rodent at the end. Uh, but I knew that it would be the, the game changer for everyone. So I saved it till the end. 
Um, and uh, yeah, a few people were like, eh, you know, they're not, they're like, oh, I think I'm full. <laughs> but they tried it and then everyone wanted more. Everyone loved it. So yeah, I have, uh, I have served it very successfully and people love it. Strong first answers. And you, you give us a shout next time you have that wild game meal and we'll, uh, we'll show up on the doorstep. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, monitor your uh your social feeds and just check out the next time you're on the move and just yeah. conveniently uh um schedule yeah. a trip out that way yeah actually the pictures in in the squirrel post that i have the photos are from that meal so if you, when you get to it there's a i talk about cooking and frying it and those photos are from that meal so, what's your let's yeah. let's do a little shout out there right now what's your instagram handle where do people find you on there uh that's a good question i think it's uh my first and last name with a period. So Paul period McCartney and um, people will go, oh, they'll type in Paul McCartney, like the guy from the Beatles, uh, but there's no T in my name. So um, yeah, Paul period McCartney. Double C, no T. Yeah, that's it. Okay, cool. What's something that's perfect, perfectly ordinary for you? For, for me, for example, might be my coffee in the morning. I have to have every morning and there's nothing special about it, but it's just something essential to my identity. Yeah, I'd be the same. Um, I used to do this thing where I didn't drink coffee. I tried to stagger my coffee schedule so that I didn't get, I didn't want to get like the coffee headaches if I didn't have coffee. You know, this thing like I don't want to get dependent on coffee. But then at some mm. point I realized that coffee is just so dependable. So why not depend on it? So now I'm the same way. Yeah, yeah. Now I, uh, but I get up, I get up early and I sit and have coffee and read for like an hour every morning before work. And that's like, that's been a game changer for me. Um, I think you so. might've just come up with a new coffee slogan. there, like more dependable than a, a GMC or something along yeah. those lines. <laughs> Don't worry about withdrawal. Just keep depending on it. You know? Yeah. 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 Totally. Uh, number three, what are you listening to right now? Oh, that's a, that's a wild question. So I, uh, I grew up in the um, uh, suburbs of Toronto and I grew up in like the punk scene going to like local shows and um, playing music that we weren't very good at playing our instruments and just being loud. Um, and uh, then at some point I kind of got out of it. And lately I've been going back into a lot of old bands that I listened to when I was in my like teens and twenties. Um, so I've been back into a lot of like, um, actually including uh, a band called Propagandi and they're mm -hmm. from, uh, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff like that again, actually. And then, uh, and then I go from that to bands like to people like, you know, Bunny Bear and the National and stuff. So I go all over the place. Yeah. One of my favorite country artists is uh, Corb Lund. And so I'm not sure if you would know Corb's band leading into his. Uh, yeah, you do. Oh, not his um, band. I don't think I know Corb Lund, but I don't think I know his band. No. Yeah. So he actually had a punk band that he studied music through both like jazz and then he had a punk band that would. Uh, would rehearse called the smalls and they, they, they were actually had a small following, but obviously did better for himself in the country music scene than he, than the smalls did. But it's kind of funny to think I was shocked when I heard that. I was like, no, he just seems so Western. How could he yeah. be a punk band? Well, they, but, they've done it. You don't remember the band, uh, remember their band default. Yeah. They had that like one song wasting my time. Well, you know, Dallas Smith is the singer of that band. And he's now, a he's a great country singer now and I actually I mean I like him much better as a country artist than I like default <laughs> so yeah some versatility out there for sure yeah okay and uh number four something that you hate irrationally or if you don't hate it maybe something you dislike that's um maybe unwarranted chewing with your mouth open but I I think it's totally warranted 
<laughs> to hate it. Yeah, no, but it's, uh, it's, it's, that's a huge pet peeve of mine. Um, I don't mind talking with your mouth. If you're, if you're eating a meal and you got something to say, yeah, hit me with it. That's fine. But uh, yeah. I don't want to hear people chew. <laughs> There's a middle ground there for sure. Yeah. Okay. And last burner coming your way. Would you hunt a grizzly? Oh man. Um, I feel like this is a segue into, uh, into things here. So um, you're a very sharp man, Paul. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you. That's why I pay me the big bucks. Um, <laughs> You know, I've, I I don't know actually. It's I, I don't know yet. Um, and uh, I've gone kind of back and forth on it a bit over the last number of years since I really started learning about grizzly hunting and 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 reading about them. And I mean, and I hey, I've had uh, black bears um, probably second to squirrel for me. It's I mean, black bears we eat more black bear than anything else, any other game meat. Um, I've been on polar bear hunts. I not I haven't been hunting them myself. I've been on the hunt. I've eaten and butchered polar bear numerous times. So the concept of bear hunting to me is something I'm very supportive of. Um, I'm just not sure if I personally want to hunt a grizzly. Um, not against it. Just not. I'm not sure. I, so I guess the answer is I I would. I don't know if I will. Yeah. How's that? You know that's perfect because, like you said, it's going to lead us into more conversation. And uh, I, I appreciate the complexity for sure. And we, we had you on here because the, your interesting takes on your blog, like I said, the landscapes and letters there. Um, we'll ask you about that in a minute here, but I'm, I'm curious as to like, you had a very interesting, from what I saw, like kind of academic career leading into where you are now. So what was kind of your journey like, and how did you, you know what, let's, let's even back up a little further. Like, how did you start hunting and engaging in like the natural world in that way? Yeah. So those two, those two things are really connected for me. So like I said, I grew up in, um, outside Toronto. So I didn't know anyone who hunted. I no one in my family hunted. Um, I was always did stuff outdoors. I mean, I fished growing up. Um, but I always sort of describe it like I just fished. I wasn't, I didn't identify as a, as a fisher, as an angler, right? right? I didn't identify with that. Um, so I just did it. And, but I did it a lot when I was young and, I got into backcountry canoe tripping and hiking and things. Um, so, you know, spent a lot of time like getting to nature and getting to, to wilderness areas, but um, never, never, and I kind of in a hunting or a consumptive way other than like I say fishing. And I didn't connect the two in my mind. I didn't, I didn't see them. And now I, now I very much do. I think of hunting and fishing as similar. I bring similar ethics to both of them. And, um, and I mean, when I was, at some point when I was young, I can remember having, you know, pretty strong anti-hunting sentiments. Um, and, uh, but, but so what got me into it, it was, I was going through, um, academic work and going through university. Um, and I started getting a lot more involved in, in studying environmental issues, um, learning about a lot of kind of resource extraction things. So I was, I did some work, on, um, uh, some research on, on mining and, um, big hydroelectric dams and things. So I started to move into learning about environmental issues and climate change and everything. And then, and kind of connected that with a lot of previous work I had done around human rights and um, research of people and started to see those connections between human well-being, environmental well-being and, and human environmental sort of justice and things. Um, and and then the, the next step was really, I, I so I got into, um, I was doing my master's and uh, looking at a, case study on um, mining on indigenous territory in Ontario 
and took a enrolled in a ecology um, course, an ecosystem management course at Fleming College in Ontario because I, I needed to get I wanted to get more hands on and field based training. You know, so everything I'd done before that was a lot of social science work um, and politics and history and, and um, I, I had a degree in indigenous studies. So I took a um, enrolled in a ecology program at, at college and um, it was super field based. So we, um, you know, we were outdoors all the time and uh, I did a lot of identifying trees in the area, animal tracks. We did, um, you know, a lot of wetland ecology stuff. Um, and so I, uh, that really pushed me into wanting a lot more real personal connection with a lot of the, um, a, lot of, a lot of wildlife and, and, and um, kind of, you know, ecosystem processes. Um, and then, and I had some, then I just met people who, who talked to me a lot more about hunting. I mean, I was very, by that point, I was really open and amenable to the, to, to hunting. I just hadn't had a way to get into it myself. And I met some, met some people who um, were really into bow hunting um, and, uh, you know, just spent time talking about it. And then I met some friends who met some people who actually um, ran um, hunter education and firearms training courses in Ontario and started working for them. Um, had never that at that point had really only never really shot a gun. Um, started working for them and basically just jumped into it fully and just just completely immersed myself in it. Um, once I once I got onto it and once I found something that there was that I was really interested in and a way to connect hunting as a as a lifestyle and, and an ethic and a, with the kind of morals and things that I was already interested in, then it was like it was the the training had left the station you know for me at that point so um but it was but that was yeah that was really the connection for me was was getting it was a kind of a the academic work that i was doing was kind of a gateway into into connecting with hunting on a, on many different personal levels and and uh and it sort of connected to every part of my life that i was involved in it's interesting because that that uh, transition you just described there it sounds like a very like gradual and like um, contemplative one not just not just like a really acute or um, you know sharp turnaround there it didn't seem like there was an aha moment as much as it was just kind of like this gradual introduction to uh, hunting as a, as a lifestyle yeah that's exactly it I mean it was um, it was kind of as I say making those little connections I had a lot of different things that I was that I was doing and passionate about and, and involved in and it was the more I kind of went you know well that thing has a connection with hunting and that thing has a connection with trapping and that thing has a connection with fishing it was about realizing that um, that that sort of way of interacting with the world through hunting fishing um, it, it kind of checked all the boxes for this for the things that I was that I was doing the places that the kind of things I wanted to go and where I wanted to go with what I was learning and what I was doing with my own with my life you know um and then yeah like I said it was just like then there's no going back at that point um so that that lines up a lot with like we do some work with like Delta Waterfowl and the Wildlife Federation here and that lines up very closely like with kind of their recruitment models which like indicate that you need to have someone on board with hunting for you know like a long time you can't just kind of there's you just don't sign them up and they're good to go kind of scenario so it's, yeah. it's interesting that your journey mirrored that what was the what was the point of no return though you mentioned that there was something that you you know you kind of clutched onto and didn't go back what was that moment um so i think it was uh um one of my someone who was in, on my master's committee who had been like an academic mentor and who who i'm still really close with um he did a lot of bow hunting um, and I didn't really know anything about that. I didn't know you could 
I didn't, I did never seen or held a compound bow. And I mean, I was in my twenties, you know, early twenties at this point. And he started telling me about bow hunting um, and just the kind of things that we now, that we think about as defining bow hunting a lot, right? The close nature of it, the quietness of it, the, the um, you, you know, that things are super, um, there's, there's such a direct connection between what you're doing yourself and then the eventual arrow hitting target. And so a lot of that stuff really clicked with me. Um, and that was really my, that was really what made me, because as I said, like I was really, I got into this and got really interested in it because I was really sort of um, latching on to the idea that hunting was a next step in a real personal connection with wildlife and, and nature. So that element of bow hunting uh, around, you know, the close nature of it, the quietness of it, that sort of stuff really spoke to what was already interesting me about hunting. Um, and then uh, once I knew that I wanted to do it, and I mean, then it, then it was, then it was, I, I get really sort of obsessively interested in things in that way. So once I knew I wanted to do it, it was like, I said, I started working for these friends of mine who did hunting courses. I went and, I went and lived at their company on their, at their property for a while where they ran the courses. So I, every day, all day, I mean, my full-time job was firearms and hunting um, for years. Um, so I went, I mean, I'm talking like, I went from, from having shot a gun once in preparation for my first turkey hunt in the spring to that fall moving in with them a few months later. And then it was years of like every day, all day, everything from pulling apart guns and, you know, putting them back together to hauling, you know, deer feet out. So yeah, it was everything. And I guess that's kind of, in, that's, uh, that's really the other side of the, the conversation that maybe, and we'll talk about later, gets lost in some of this trophy hunting debate that I think um, comes up is what, what trophy hunting means, but also like everything that goes into hunting isn't always portrayed either in media or through, through anything really. So um, it's, it's quite, it can be quite a personal experience in a lot of ways. And it, it sounds like you had your own take on a very intimate experience with a couple uh, mentors there. So that's cool to hear. Um, and then education wise, I was reading your CV there, whatever it might be. And uh, like, you've been to some pretty wild places. Like, what are some of the highlights of like your career there? I know, you know, Chase flew helicopter for a while. So he's had some of the the Northern experience too. You can see the, the whale meat uh, <laughs> bag in the background there. He's got firsthand experience, but uh, like, what are some of those highlights of your kind of academic career um, that kind of round you out there as a person, I'm guessing? Yeah. Um, well, so when I started doing my PhD, by that point, I was, I was, I was sort of living and breathing hunting in a lot of ways, as much as I could anyway. So when I, when I decided to do a PhD, I, um, I knew that I wanted to be to, for that work. I should have, I wanted to do it in reverse. Whereas earlier in my life, my academic work brought me to hunting. Now I wanted to make sure that I had some element of hunting in what I was doing academically. Um, and so I started, so the, the, um, the project I worked on was, uh, um, around Arctic wildlife. So we were, I was connected with, a um, my supervisor was a biologist at York university who studied polar bears and seals in Nunavut. And, um, I got connected with him. And, uh, so, the, so the, the project that we were, that he was running was a harvest based seal monitoring program project. And so what that is, um, similar to how a lot of hunters will be familiar with filling out harvest reports, right? How many of this animal did you see? How many did you shoot? Um, and it was a similar thing where we would send 
harvest kits to, to hunters in Nunavut communities. And when they would go out and hunt seals, they would take samples of different parts of the seal for various studies. So they would take parts of the um, of uh, liver and muscle tissue for contaminant analysis. They would collect the jawbone to age the seals. Um, the reproductive organs would tell us um, how healthy the population was doing, and if they were, if they were, if the individual seal had reproduced. So it tells you a bit about you know reproductive rates in the population. So that was super fascinating to me that I, that there was this work being done that directly relied on on local hunters, and it it just it just hit like it just connected so well to what I was interested in. So I got to go up to, to the community that I was working with a lot was a, was a, um, a small community called Kugaruk in Nunavut, um, which is sort of um, just west of Hudson Bay um, on the on the um, northern kind of Arctic Ocean side. So I got to go up there and go out with seal hunters, and that was where I, I went on a polar bear hunt. We were out um, looking for seals and um, to, to collect for these samples, and uh, um, the guy that I was out with ended up uh, had a polar bear license as well, so um, ended up on a polar bear hunt with him. And um, so that was, I mean, those things were incredible. I mean, and I mean, it, it just it just made it so clear to me how um, the, there's, like I say, the personal connection with hunting there and the, and the people I was working with, but then just how much these conversations permeate into every other part of what we talk about when we talk about conservation, wildlife management, that, you know, this is how we were gathering information on, on contaminants in, in food and in wildlife and in movement and population assessment. Um, and it, at that point was, was well beyond you know, just advocating for hunting. It was about um, all sorts of other research. But anyway, to get to your question, uh, so some of the, so some of the, I was, I got to go on um, the sea ice up in Kugaruk and then, um, and then, uh, you know, we were living in uh, Northern Labrador for the last few years and I was working for the Inuit government there. And um, yes, we were up in helicopter in the Torngat Mountains National Park a couple of times. Um, and, you know, being, getting, getting to go out on sea ice um, to do to do a lot of research and work and and then and then hunting as well is um, is such a special like experience um, and it's it's something that it makes you look at frozen ocean in a, in a whole different way and see it as as living habitat the same way that someone you'd look at you'd think about wetlands or or lake systems or forests and you see you know sea ice as as that too as that super dynamic living habitat that a lot of wildlife depend on. Um, yeah, so those are some of the, I mean, those are, those have been really amazing trips. Um, that just sounds wild. And it, it, it makes me think that you've kind of, you managed to dive into like and immerse yourself in like, perhaps like some of the most, I don't want to use the word pure, but, um, uh, like subsistence based hunting that or uh living that you might have in canada or you know the world some might say um and then now you've kind of leveraged yourself into a position here where you're now writing about it and you're not you're kind of writing about the under other end of the spectrum as well too here which is the the trophy hunting that seems to be in the the media all the time um and it seems to be like that's kind of like the the counterweight to um some of the stuff that we work with uh, as uh, subsistence hunters, but I'm just wondering, do you do you consider yourself a trophy hunter, Paul? No, I don't. Um, but I will say I have yet to have somebody clearly define 
and articulate what trophy hunting is to me. Um, so, uh, no, I don't. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm, I have, I have a bear skull sitting right in front of me from the first black bear that I shot. And I've got, um, a beautiful mount of a white tailed deer that I shot with, with my wife and her uncle. Um, so, um, you know, to, to whatever extent that we really understand clearly what that term is, no, I don't consider myself that, um, is yeah. it is the term even helpful? Because like I I read your blog on it. It was a fantastic uh, post, and um, it really helps us. I think think about what we talk about when we say things like trophy hunt. And for me, I would even throw uh, the term like poacher in there, for example, too, because they're both problematic from what I can tell. Right? It, it kind of it it doesn't seem to be any clear line in the hunting community as to where a trophy hunter or poacher starts and, you know, the, uh, you know, the ethical hunter, um, begins, right. There's, um, maybe a poacher has the benefit of some legal framework behind it, but, um, trophy hunting for sure is a lot more of a nebulous term. Is it even helpful or is this something that we should be staying away from? Yeah, it's, you know, um, I, I had this conversation with someone recently, on social media um and i asked i said hey look i'll i'll have the discussion about it but i need to know what we're talking about like i need to know how to define trophy hunting and he said um you know i think it's a, i think i think it's sort of a cop-out that you you wanted you wanted some definition but i think don't think we need to and i said well if we're talking about legislating hunting based on trophy hunting then there's no law ever that that is that that legislates something without defining that thing so we do need to know what it is. Um, and if we can't define it, and if we can't, and I think more importantly than just sort of imposing a definition on it at this point in the conversation is um, recognizing that there are so many different people using the term and the concept in different ways that, we're, that if we're not going to agree on it, it's, um, it becomes impossible to have the conversation about it. Um, and we need to start to, um, to foot, to, we need to start to parse that out and figure out what we're talking about in different cases and talk about that thing. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't think to me the term is not all that helpful because I've, I haven't had conversations where I've got, where I've, where I've looked back and said the success of that conversation is thanks to our understanding of the concept of trophy hunting and our understanding of how people define or don't define the, the term. And I just, I, I, I haven't seen successful conversations. Yeah. Is it not, isn't it not obvious though, like something's right and it's right. And you know, something that's wrong is wrong is, you know, trophy hunting, not just kind of like this intuitive, um, do we really have to go through the, the hoops of defining it? Like, wouldn't it make more sense just to go on that common sense notion of what it is? But I don't know what that is. Like, I, I don't know what that is. Um, and I, and I think so that I think where we get to in it is, and again, like, I think maybe my, my perspective on it a little bit isn't, is, or, or quite a bit maybe is informed by, um, you know, the fact that I've really been involved in a lot of, um, a lot of hunting based research. So wildlife research and environmental research that has interacted and depended on harvest and hunting. Um, so I, that's really where I focus a lot of kind of my connection with the understanding of it. And I, I, I haven't seen yet how the conversation around trophy hunting has helped move that along and helped us say, okay, well, then, then, then what for wildlife management? Then what for wildlife research? Then what for even our understanding of, of hunting ethics? And I think that that's where um, 
yeah, I think, you know, in my head, it's easy for me to say, yeah, I know it's not trophy hunting because A, B, and C. But then as soon as I talk to someone, one other person, they're going, well, no, but I think about it as C, D, and E or E, F, and G. And, they, and it's totally different, different things that they, that they associate with it. So I, I guess, and to give an example, um, kind of be a little more concrete with this. I talked to someone recently about it and I said, you know, it, so is trophy hunting, does it come down to a sort of an intention then, an intentionality in, in the hunter's mind? When I leave the house, when I tie my boots up and leaving the house, what's going on in my sort of head and heart around the hunt? Um, and if I know that I'm that my intention is the thing that we would commonly associate with trophy hunting, right? That I'm I'm far more interested in whether it's headgear or or pelt size, and I'm and I know deep in my core that what I'm wanting to do is enter record books and and these things. Then okay, that person in this case this alternate me might identify them as a trophy hunter. And I would look at that person and say, you know, that's just not my personal perspective on ethical hunting. I don't think that those motivations are to me what drives me to be an ethical hunter. So I can distinguish in some cases, you know, and then there's an um, author I really like um, named David Peterson. He talks about nature hunters and other types of hunters, sport hunters and, and different. And he, he, would, he would put a lot of emphasis, I think, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he would put a lot of emphasis on the element of intention. You know, what's what's going on in, inside the hunter that motivates you. Um, so, but in terms of, yeah, so. We're kind of at a crossroads here, though, because it's not just hunters that are having a tr trouble wrapping their head around trophy hunting. It's, um, you know, people who criticize hunting are using the term, legislators are using the term, um, and we know damn well that it's pretty hard to legislate intention so mm -hmm. what what's the path forward here? Like, how do we make sense of this trophy hunting debacle? And like, what are we, what should we actually be focusing on if not uh, trophy hunting? Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's exactly where I was going to go with it was, was sort of like, so in a discussion here of the three of us, talking about intention and emotion and motivation is, is great, intellectually stimulating, but it doesn't really help when we need to make funding decisions and legislative decisions and regulations. And so, um, you know, in that case, um, in those cases, I, I am not an expert on this stuff at all, but like by any stretch, um, you know, but I've seen in recent examples, um, you know, we've seen in, in British Columbia just recently around a push to to ban trophy hunts and they go, well, for example, black bears. And I and I'm I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around what where is the kind of line or when does a species or a hunt become a trophy hunt or a trophy species and i sort of thought about it in that way in, in different times recently as well where um is it a species that defines the trophy hunting you know where a grizzly bear for instance is always a trophy hunt no matter what just because it's a grizzly bear is it the hunt that defines it so if you hunt with a with an outfitter that costs more than ten thousand dollars for the hunt then it's a trophy hunt. i mean i just i just don't I don't know how those how we how we determine that, and I don't know how we make that distinction in a way that is helpful to to hunters, to wildlife, to managers, to conservation funding, and to people and to other people in the public who have differing opinions. Um, because this is the other part to me is that me saying me sort of giving up and saying, yeah, okay, fine, let's let's define black bears as trophy hunts. 
to, to somebody who's against black bear hunting. I don't feel that I'm doing that person any favors in their understanding of things. I don't want to be condescending here, but I, but I, I don't feel like me just sort of giving in and saying, okay, fine. I don't feel like that's helping advance the conversation because um, there's, I don't think that we're moving forward in our understanding of, of black bears, of black bear hunting or of trophy hunting in that case. I feel like then it's just sort of giving into this kind of um, really unclear concept that's not helping anyone. So I'm kind of interested in, uh, in, in hearing your, um, your, I guess, kind of opinion on, on the whole thing that's going on in BC right now. And I, I, I'm going to narrow it down to black bears and just for easy conversation so we can, so it's not too lengthy, but um, mm-hmm. like in my mind, people want to get rid of black bear hunting because they think people just come up, they shoot them for the pelt or the skull and that's it. And you yourself said at the, at the start of this podcast that, uh, you know, black bear is like your number two meat for table fare mm-hmm. to go to. It's very, very good. I know lots of people who, who say that and, and in my personal life, like I, I shot a bear when I was younger and I hadn't had any desire to go after another bear until recent years now where I'm when I want it for table fare. Um, one last thing before <laughs> you can get, get to her and like you read lots of the literature from way back and like black bear is one of the most desired game eats that, that people would go for. Um, so all that being said, do you think that like, them putting that forward uh to kind of push it through is based on the fact that they're going to get a bunch of people on board that really don't know the uh i guess a how good blackberry meat is and b that people are actually consuming it and that they grade it very highly or what's your yeah, what's your view exactly. sorry what's your view no i think that's exactly what it is i think it's um i think that we, that people get people generally get kind of tied to a narrative and tied to a position. And then we get into this thing where we have to sort of cling to and defend that position and find ways to justify that. And I think we all do this. Um, I'm not exempting myself from this, but in that case of black bears in BC, I think that that's perhaps what's happening where, where people feel like they are against what they think they understand as trophy hunting. And then as is often the case with big sweeping narratives, when we start to get into the, the weeds and the details, those sweeping narratives start to fall apart a little bit. And I think we're not, when, when we see that happening, we kind of double down on things and, and, and cling to them. So I think that's what's happening with black bears is, is it's like, well, is, is trophy hunting when you don't eat the animal, in which case black bears certainly don't fit that across the board. And is trophy hunting when it's a rare animal? Black bears definitely don't fit that. Is trophy hunting when it's a, a super, um, sort of charismatic and um, regal, quote, regal animal, things like sheep and, and things, right? And it's like, well, black bears maybe fit that for some people. So we start to see some of these pieces erode a little bit from the conversation. And I think, Tansy, to kind of get back to what you were saying, I, yeah, I think that is kind of what's happening is that, um, well, we people, I think we know, well, if we just cling to something that gets people connected to it emotionally, in this case, the idea of trophy hunting and what becomes an easy opposition to something like trophy hunting, then that's a way to kind of move through what is in it, what is essentially an opposition to hunting altogether. And I'm much more interested in that 
like I've said before, if someone's not, if someone doesn't support hunting and is anti-hunting, I'm all, I'm curious. By all means, tell me about it. What I'm not interested in or what I don't find helpful is when it's a moral or emotional argument that's sort of disguised as something else, whether that's scientific, you know, um, whether it's a scientific argument or a specific argument that's sort of disguised in this larger moral around, you know, being anti-trophy hunting, in which case it doesn't really, doesn't really, it's not consistent, right? So I think that that's kind of what is happening there is um, it's being sort of wrapped up in this larger package of, of ideas um, and, uh, in, in this case, in the case with black bears, I'm starting to fall apart. And I think what I'm sort of concerned about is that I think that's when we see from all sides, we see the conversation start to get real, um, real angry and real unproductive. And, and that's super unfortunate. Trophy hunting seems to be this limelight for the larger debate, which is, seems to be between hunters and maybe people who, who don't harvest their food in that fashion, or who are maybe don't have as much knowledge about hunting or don't like hunting for whatever reason. Um, and so the, it's, it seems like it's a, it's an easy venue to communicate on. We're interested in it on the podcast here. You're blogging about it. People are writing about it all over the world, but really it seems to be this vehicle for communication between, um, uh, a larger conversation, which is what is hunting and what is conservation. And, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, like, there's a, there's a few things I want to dive into with you here, Paul is like, first, there, there seems to be a difference in philosophical approaches to conservation when it comes to, we'll say hunters and, you know, um, the non hunters who are pushing against like a black bear hunt, what kind of, what kind of are those deep underpinnings that kind of clash up against each other when, when we're looking at these things? Oh man. Um, it's a big question. Uh. Well, <laughs> I can narrow it down for you. Like you, you mentioned, and I, and I, I, I get it too. Cause when I think of my own sense of, uh, conversations I've had with non hunters who are maybe against how I choose to practice my, my harvesting, um, They'll be, they'll be tremendously upset that I have killed a deer and that how could you kill a deer? It's very pretty and it's very um, innocent. Innocent is a term that I, I see a lot. And um, I think you highlighted it well in the blog is, and it's kind of like this utilitarian versus like rights-based arguments, whereas like, um, you know, as hunters, we're trying to look at the landscape as a whole with a, you know, conservation narrative that says, um, what is best for this ecosystem here? And, you know, the, the one deer might die, but the, the ecosystem will maintain itself. And I am part of that ecosystem. So, you know, life kind of journeys forward. But on the other side of the coin, it seems to be that people are worried that you have, um, you have done something that is unethical just by killing something that is, um, beautiful and innocent. How do, how do we even navigate that conversation or like, where's the middle ground there? Like, how do we get through that? Cause you came, you yourself came from a non hunting background here and yet here yeah. you are dusting things with an arrow and killing, killing seals, I'm sure. So, uh, how, how do we get there? How do we, how do we come to a mutual understanding? Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, it's as sort of cliche as it sounds sometimes. I mean, a lot of how I came to this, like I said, was from a lot of personal connection with it, a lot of um, personal stories and a lot of um, people expressing things from their perspective. And I, and I sort of talk about that at different times as well, that 
um, let's move away from these, in some cases, let's maybe move away from these huge narratives about, about things and focus much more on personal stories and personal motivations. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, that's something that I, I think allows us to, to connect around, you know, our ethics and morals and, and beliefs on these things is, is let's, let's start to focus on personal stories. What is it that brought that person to that place that they're at? And what is it that brought me to this place? And let's figure out, then let's sort of peel those layers away and find out what's going on foundationally to those. Um, and I, that's, that's by, by and large, um, that is how I have connected with people who most successfully, who either don't like hunting at all, don't like certain species of hunting, don't like certain approaches to it. And I mean, these are all the nuances I think we need to get at, you know, that when sometimes when someone says they hunt or they don't hunt, we, we sort of fill in those, we sort of, it's like pouring water into a bucket. It's, it's just, everything just fills up. But then when we start to peel those away, you realize, well, well, what do you hunt and why do you hunt and what, what don't you do to eat for your food and, and why not? And let's start to figure out where those things are and where those differences really are. And, and more, I mean, more often than not, I have found that there's, and I mean, this, I, I mean this very sincerely and it's not sort of bullshitty at all. More often than not, I, within those conversations, I have found there is something to connect on. There is some shared idea. And again, it just sounds, it just starts to sound kind of cliche, but I mean, that's just how it's been for me. In other cases, when there hasn't been anything shared, there's been no, no common ground, that has also become clear. And even in those cases, it's been, okay, you know what? We're, there's no common ground on this. So let's just sort of accept that and find something else to talk about and stop talking at each other. But I think to me that that's, um, it's sort of going further back and further back in, in the conversation. So I think what happens a lot of time, and this is connected, I, I will sort of try and draw this together, I promise. But what sometimes happens is we sort of start talking at a certain level and underneath that level are a whole bunch of assumptions that we each bring to the conversation. Well, I assume that killing is okay for my food. I assume that connecting to wildlife by killing it, that there is a, there, it, it is possible for that to be morally good and ethical. And the other person comes at it with those assumptions that there's no possible way to kill something ethically. But if we don't figure that out, if we don't get at that, then how are we to ever I think that's where we sometimes go as we, we look to find common ground moving the conversation forward rather than finding common ground at the real foundational parts of the conversation, right? Backing it up to sort of the lowest common denominator in the conversation. Um, and I think that that's one of those things that, that we really need to do. And what we're seeing with the trophy hunting conversation is we're, we're starting the conversation out with this term that everyone understands maybe a bit differently. And we need to go back further and further and go, what is it that we all, what's the sort of foundational point that we all understand the same and build and sort of rebuild the conversation from there. Um, and that's something that I, I think we, uh, sort of social media certainly does not help us do that. Um, and uh, I think we, we, we just, we just miss that opportunity sometimes. Um, and if, and if, you know, then there's other times where we've all been in conversations where the other person doesn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. They don't want to strip that back and they don't want to go back to those foundations. And everyone has this, and I don't, I don't want to sort of demonize, I will, I'm probably, I'm, I feel like I am as committed to my understanding of hunting as being an ethical way to live as an anti-hunter is committed to, to, to the fact that it's not. So I can understand when someone 
doesn't feel, doesn't see that, that there is anything to strip back. When I say like, let's strip back those layers and they go, well, there is no way to strip back. It's, it's sort of a, well, then, okay. Then in this case, I'm going to try and meet them where they are. And I think sometimes we just need to make that sacrifice. We just need to say, you know, um, what is in the best long-term interest of, of hunting and of hunting conversations? It's getting to a place where we can move the conversations forward. And I'm not going to get hung up on the fact that I, at this point, in this conversation, in this particular issue, I need to go to the other person. I need to meet them where they are because they're, maybe they're not going to come meet me halfway or meet me where I am. And um, I, don't really get, I don't really get super um, defensive about that anymore where I, dig, I don't really tend to dig in on that anymore. I'll just, you know, yeah, tell me about your side then and I'll figure something out to talk to you about there, you know. Um, we, we've chatted about it on the podcast before and, um, it's kind of the case we've agreed that, or at least I think that, um, like it or not, it's kind of on us as hunters to engage with the other side, to advance our, our lifestyle and our interests in, uh, conservation. Um, and, it, and I think it probably always has been that way and always will be that way. I, I like the way you framed it, where you've kind of used uh, you've personalized and humanized your ethical framework and your your story by injecting yourself into it and making it mm. your own, right? And that that's a real seems to be a connection point for a lot of people, not just in when we talk about hunting, but anything we do. Um, yeah, and and that's and that's not. I mean, this is where I try to emphasize to other hunters as well, right? Is let's use the things that we already know we're good at. I mean, if if nothing else, hunters and anglers can tell a good story. You know, and that's what we do all the time. And I go, so like, that's not foreign to us. That concept of tell good, compelling, meaningful stories about what you do and why you do it as a concept and as a, as a conversational tool, that's, that's something that hunters and are very familiar with and very comfortable with. So it's, I go, let's just find a way to use that, that ability and that interest that we already have in a way that, that contributes a little more meaningfully to, to a bigger, to a bigger goal on a bigger vision. Right. Um, and I, and I, so I, I kind of try to think about that stuff too, is what are the things that we, that we, that we already know how to do, you know? And, and I mean, similarly to, you know, when I say like, if someone else is just not willing to sort of come halfway in the conversation or they're not willing to pull back and question their own, the, their own sort of sets of assumptions that they bring to the conversation, which I mean, God knows I have been unwilling in, in times of, in conversations to question my own biases. But if the person's not, I go, okay, well, then we got to meet them there. we got to just be willing to go there. And, um, you know, sometimes you talk to hunters and they go like, well, no, I'm not doing that. And I go, but look, hunters as a community have a couple hundred years of expertise in, in going to the other side and crossing the aisle, the proverbial aisle, whatever that is, and meeting the other people where they are and, making hard decisions and making sacrifices and things that's not a that's not a foreign concept to hunters um and so it's just a different time and place and way to do that you know yeah you have to do it over at instagram now so (laughs) (laughs) make sure you do not toss the exclamation mark where period's supposed to be mess everything up (laughs) (laughs) it sounds like and it sounds like there's um there's the campfire could be more of a conservation tool than one might think when you, yeah. uh, you think about sharing your story and what motivates you as a hunter. And, uh, and that I, I have to ask you though, and this, this is a, this is a metaphor, uh, um, kind of a proverb I've always been speculative of, but what's your take on hunting is conservation? 
Yo, man, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, actually. Um, and uh, when I when I got into hunting, I loved it. It was so inspiring to me, and it was so neat and tidy. And I really liked the idea that as a hunter, I was a conservationist, and I loved that connection. And um, so my take on it is, I don't think we should throw it out. I don't think we should miss the opportunity to connect new hunters to conservation because that's the other thing is that not all hunters identify as conservationists and not all hunters make that connection and so that kind of phrase hunting is conservation um you know um, i don't think i think there's some utility in it because i think it brings hunters who might only think of what they're doing as the straight up physical action of hunting it brings them into the conservation discussion where i don't think we should use it and where or where i think we should reframe it is in conversations where where people don't agree with that um where people don't see hunting as conservation in which case i go i you know we can say okay well regulated hunting that generates valuable money for conservation and connects people personally to wildlife and nature helps people connect to conservation it's a much lot more long-winded way of saying it but i think the people who People who go like, well, no, hunting's not conservation. How can hunting be conservation? But then let's not use that phrase. Let's let's adjust it and let's reframe it in a way that that person does understand if, um, and that, that that does connect to them. So, I mean, personally, I I I think hunting is part of conservation. Hunting is a is an important tool, and you know, very kind of practically speaking, when wildlife managers need to do their job, hunting is one tool that they have. So is habitat protection. So is so you know. So are all these different pieces that they they can draw on. And sometimes hunting is the best tool in the toolbox, and sometimes it's not the best tool. So this is where I kind of say I I don't know that it's helping us overall to say hunting is conservation. But I think it's extremely helpful in helping us in helping us understand that we need to make that connection. We need to figure out a way to connect hunting and conservation to the person we're talking to or to the audience we're speaking to. Um, and that connection is probably going to be different between audiences. And that's okay. I think as hunters, we need to accept and be okay with it being different. You know, if someone is really, if someone is really driven by the need to raise funding for conservation and wildlife management, hunting, hunting as conservation, hunting as a revenue generation, as a source of revenue generation is a great way to go. It's a great place to go to that person. But if someone says, you know, no, I'm only interested in conservation because I want to see wildlife survived into the future, throwing the financial argument at them is probably not going to convince them. And I think in that case, we could kind of go back to what, um, you know, I think what you guys were saying earlier is that, yes, we're killing an individual deer or an individual bear, but the population of deer or bears or what have you are still healthy. They're still thriving and they're, they're going to be around in the future. And in that case, to say, you know, what we need is for people to engage in this and people to care about wildlife. And hunting allows us to do that. By, you know, we, we kill one individual at a time, but the population persists very in a, and it stays very healthy. That might speak to that person a little more than the financial argument or, you know. Um, does that make sense? Is that my... It makes – it's crystal clear to me because – I know if we look at hunters um, and their proximity to stewardship of like um, habitat and wildlife species, like I think myself personally, every time I go outside, I feel closer to not only um, a species maybe I'm targeting, but that that ecosystem too. And it's kind of a cumulative thing. It's not it's not just um, 
It's not just like um, I reset and I'm back to the same closeness that I was earlier. Oh, yeah. And it, it, like I get a deeper appreciation of that ecosystem every time I'm in that bush or wetland or wherever I might be. A sea ice, man, it'd be cool to be on the sea ice. Yeah. Um, so I think that's crystal clear. Um, I, I want to talk about the flip side of that coin, though. And I'm wondering, is is trophy hunting essential? Is, is this thing that's kind of nebulous and slick to define like is are these like let's let's look at the, the extreme example let's look at um we'll call, i'll call them like canned hunts in africa high fence hunts um very high profile species that have a lot of meaning wrapped into people mm-hmm. maybe maybe even uh slightly endangered species is that is that essential or is that something that we need to get away from yeah so this is an interesting one for me because um it, it this is where i kind of say like i go i sort of follow the thread further and further back and you know when you find that that hangnail and you start to pull at it and suddenly you're you're peeling your finger away uh, <laughs> it's sort of what happens to me when I do when I go into this yeah um uh, in a different conversation I would have given an example like pulling a thread from a sweater but yeah in this conversation I'll go with the hangnail analogy but anyway what I'm getting at is um where we are right now today yeah, a lot of those a lot of those cases are necessary um, in a strictly financial and everyday situation for local communities and for that and for the, the funding mechanisms around those species. They are essential. But we also kind of I also go back to this thing where well, it's essential within the economic system that we have built globally in a in a in a capitalist global economic system where. In order to save wildlife, they have to be. It has to be profitable. I have a big problem with that, philosophically and ethically. And so, is it essential? I, I don't think it's essential because I think we can re. I think in a in a in a utopian in my world where I'm sort of ruler of the whole world, um, we we live in a different in a completely different global economy where wildlife is not dependent on profit and capitalism, and so. We have a situation where it's not about the elephant hunt or the elephant's habitat being destroyed because we live we, we get to a place where we value habitat protection and we value biodiversity and we're and we're making decisions based on you know ecosystem health and biological diversity and not on profit and not on and not on these kind of economic gains um and those are two different conversations and this is where i come back to this you know what are we let's figure out what the foundations we're talking about those are different conversations do I think they're essential in, in any number of sort of parallel universes? No, I, I think that there are a lot of parallel. If you ran the clock on, hum, on humanity many times, I think a lot of experiments, we would not come to a place where someone has to pay $20,000 to shoot an animal in Africa in order for that animal to be worth preserving. In this current situation we're in, um, there are a lot of cases, and I'm again, I'm not an expert on, on African hunting, and, and, on, and on, even when you get into individual species that, that, that are different between contexts, when you think about predator species like lions, massive animals like elephants that cause tremendous damage, or to, to other, you know, quote, trophy hunts in Africa that the animals not, they're not, you know, they're not huge, they're not dangerous, but they're, they cost a lot of money. In a lot of these cases, um, we don't have an alternative revenue generation for that species and for that habitat protection and for that park. So in that case, if we, if we think that it, it costs money for this conservation, then they are somewhat essential, you know? 
Um, so, so I get into this thing yeah. with those where like, I don't want to do them. I, I, I've got no interest in going and shooting an elephant or a lion or a giraffe and I don't like it. And I'm, and I, and I don't think that I would have a ton in common with someone who's really fired up to do that. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think we should get rid of it. You know what I mean? So I kind of live in yeah. that, in that kind of contradiction in my head. Let me try to recap here. You tell me how I did. Um, so we we got to look at it here. And just like the, the black bear hunts in BC, uh, trophy hunting in Africa or whatever, however you want to phrase it, is a complicated issue. And as it sits right now, we need it as a conservation tool. But it begs a larger question, why do we need it as a conservation tool in the first place? And why do we need those animals to be prized like that in order to value that ecosystem as a whole? Is that yeah, a I should have said it like that. <laughs> that's how I should have phrased it. That was good. No, but that's exactly it. And I think uh, in this, this, yeah, like w what do we need and why do we need it is a, is a, is a um, such an important part of these conversations that I don't think we, we get to often. And even, even going back to, you know, here in Canada with, with the conversations in BC, you know, do we need this hunt? Well, what do we define as me? What do we, what are we getting out of that hunt that we need? as a society, is it straight up conservation funds? And if so, is there an alternative to that? And if there is an alternative to that funding and that money and that revenue, then let's explore that. Then I'm all in to explore that. If the, if the benefit we get from that particular hunt or that particular species is, is food and, and you know, culture and connection, well then maybe we can't get that from something else. Maybe we can't get that if we, if we lose this hunt. Um, and I, so I think, yeah, yeah, I think that that's a, I think that, that the way that you phrase that is a great way to, to phrase it and to sum it up and that extends to other contexts as well as, you know, why do we need that? What is it about the economic structures and the political structures and the, you know, that we live in that we, that we have this thing and that we need it. Um, and maybe it's not about that at all. Maybe it's much more personal and in which case let's focus on that part of the conversation, right. And not conflate the two and not, and not kind of ping pong these back and forth um, between one side talking about economics and one group talking about personal connection and one group talking about politics and morals. You know what I mean? So. But, but that, that is the muck of the conversation too, though, yeah. right? Because it, um, as you've identified in your blog too, like it can be almost a point of privilege for us to sit here and disagree with a hunt that they might run in Africa or a polar bear hunt up in Northern Canada. Um, because, that those communities depend on those funds for not just the conservation of the animals, but for their, their, their livelihood too. Right. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it seems like the more we dig into this, it gets less clear as opposed to more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I got to wonder too, well, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a bit of a curveball here um, to mm -hmm. kind of seg, seg from this. Was Teddy Roosevelt an unethical hunter? <laughs> oh man. You know, make everyone uh, love or hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I think Teddy Roosevelt, here with this, I think Teddy Roosevelt did a lot in his life to advance both his own and eventually our collective understanding of hunting ethics. Um, and I think like many people who spend a lot of time hunting, um, like you say, the more they get into it, the maybe the less clear and less distinguishable and, and easily definable it is. So I think I think insofar as he as Teddy Roosevelt um, collect contributed to our collective understanding of ethics, he played a really important part in ethical hunting. Um, he lived at a time when the mentality was 
there's not many of those left. Let's go shoot one to make so we get so we get so we get one before they disappear. Um, to me, of course, now to us seems well, to me seems outrageous. Um, it, you know, just from a strictly wildlife conservation population perspective, it's 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 wild to me to think that there was a right there was a time when well there's only five of those left I, we better go shoot one before they're gone um that was I, how they did a lot of science back then I, well i've heard that here recently too just to be clear <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I, I also you know i also um on my own personal side you know he went to africa on a, on a hunting trip and and shot oh, i forget the number but i mean it was it was hundreds and hundreds of animals that he shot on a on a trip in Africa, um, and I have a difficult time reconciling that volume of uh, in you know um, of hunting and of take with my own ethics. But then I question that and I go, okay, but if you spread it out over ten years, am I okay with it then? In which case, what's the, where's the consistency for me, right? If someone if he if someone shoots that many animals in one year. And then never again, why is that different to me than shooting that number of animals over a lifetime? I, it, I don't have an answer for it. <laughs> well, it seems to me to be the case too, is like as our conservation models evolve and as our understanding of the natural world evolves, so does our moral under, well, I don't want to say moral evolution, but like our, our morals change too. Yeah. So like there, there does seem to be this sliding scale for how we, we view actions in the past. And uh, sometimes I think we need to, think of them in that historical context to truly make sense of them so um yeah. but i did i did want to bring up old teddy there just because it, it it it's an interesting example because he's often held as like the figurehead of conservation mm -hmm. in, in in the west here but if you dig deep enough it's uh you know things get mucky again right there's no yeah. there's not always clear answers and people aren't heroes man right like i would say like never meet your heroes right because um <laughs> People aren't heroes. They uh, they're flawed and they're they're fallible and um, and so I think that we definitely do a disservice. That this is where I get kind of come back to like what's the purpose of the conversation, right? Um, we talk about Teddy Roosevelt, and to me, where do I get to by by defining him as either hero hero or villain? Probably not as far as I get going thinking, you know. What was his contribution to to this part of the conversation, and what was his contribution to this part of hunting our understanding of hunting ethics and conservation and stuff? And then we start to pull apart all kinds of potential contributions that the man made, good and bad. Um, and I think that that's probably uh, more useful and more interesting. Um, but yeah, you're, you're totally right. He's uh, um, we get to this thing right where this, these monolithic conversations again, where for a long time, it was, well, Teddy Roosevelt is the hero of conservation. And now you go on social media and everyone's got this, what they think is this real hot take because they're saying Teddy Roosevelt wasn't a hero after all. And it's like, yeah, like, fine, sure. So let's, let's dig into it a bit and get more interesting than just that, you know, than just these dichotomies. I don't know if you're ever going to work for BuzzFeed with nuance like that, Paul. It's going to be... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm. I sent in my TMZ application last week, so we'll see if they, uh, <laughs> they call me back. But uh, yeah, no, I, I know uh, this is why not many people read my blog, Justin, because uh, <laughs> this is why five and a half years in. Uh, yeah. No, we. I loved it, and um, I think. Um, you know, one of the softball questions I was going to pitch you is, um, you know, we're we're talking a lot about ethics on in 
in hunting and uh, how we think of ourselves as hunters is it is it does it even make sense to to talk like that does it is it a worthwhile exercise to think ethically about hunting and what that means but i think you've done a great job kind of like answering like i i mean i crossed that question off my page because we've gone over it and like we've already seen the value and what it what it is for hunters not only do we grow as people but we we get to explain and share our our passion in a way that is meaningful to other people that we we need to help have the conversation uh on on hunting here too with right um and so like that that leads me to my other question that's not cross off the list which is like as as it sits right now is like our us as hunters kind of like unfairly expected to like carry some of that burden of the conservation kind of um mantle or is that kind of like like what's your take on that like a... i think we are on i think we put it on ourselves a lot but i think we we are unfairly expected to um to carry a, a unified and, and like i say kind of monolithic understanding of conservation and i think we put that on ourselves as hunters i think we have this this, we, we hear this from hunting organizations and hunting media, right? That, well, we all got to stick together and we all got to be in it together. And again, I come back to this, you know, what are, why? Like, what are we demonstrating by, with that? Because I know a lot of smart hunters and I know a lot of people that are capable of having these conversations that we're having right now and, and really digging into these things and exploring disagreements within the hunting community and coming out of it stronger and coming out of it okay. And we hear this, we hear this narrative, you know, where we, we, we can't have disagreement within the hunting community because then the big bad anti-hunter will huff and puff our house down. And I, and I just think like, I haven't really seen that, the evidence of that, that because that, that if hunters demonstrate and show debate within our own community, that that will be seen as a, as a sort of a crack in the foundation that will be capitalized on by, by anti-hunters. I don't think that there's, I don't think that there are cases where, I, I mean, maybe I'm totally wrong. I'm, I can't think of cases where we have seen a massive loss of hunting opportunities that have been, where those have been attributed to nuanced disagreement within the hunting community, where we haven't sort of been able to kind of respond to that. And I mean, you know, we just recently in California, when um, the, um, there was a senator that, that, that introduced a bill to ban um black bear hunting and there was i saw all sorts of disagreement and discussion within the hunting community around bears and bear hunting and yet a lot of people still mobilized to respond to that and 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 it caused the bill to be withdrawn so i think that we are in again kind of finding finally winding my way back to your question um in terms of what we define as conservation i think we put this sort of idea that we have to have this single, singular and sort of monolithic idea of what conservation and hunting as conservation is. And then no matter what, we all have to get behind that and push that. And I, I don't think that's the case. And I think once we sort of start to see that, we realize that um, conservation in terms of the, the funding mechanisms and things are not all on hunters as much as we perhaps think. We, mm. we hunters, you know, we know, of course, that hunters contribute massively financially and, and in terms of labor to, to conservation. Um, but I think once we sort of start to see nuanced communities within the hunting community, we realize, well, there's a big group of hunters that have a lot in common with with bird watchers who who pay a lot to do to pay a lot into into outdoor recreation. And there's some hunters that have a lot 
in common with boaters or, or, or with different skiers or different people who also contribute in some way to conservation. And, and that may not be through the same financial means that we do because they're not buying hunt, skiing licenses necessarily, but they are contributing into the, in the bigger sense around connecting people to nature and around advocating for habitat protection and around um, a broader public appreciation for wildlife and things like that. And so I think once we start to realize that that we do, we, we can celebrate some of those differences and some of those quote disagreements within the hunting community, we can use those as a strength to also find connections with other communities of people as well. Um, and we don't lose the connection with the hunting community just because I disagree with somebody around, around whether it's wolf hunting or seal hunting or whatever the case is, I don't lose my connection to that person around hunting more broadly. That's fine. We don't, we don't agree on that one thing, but no problem. We still agree on hunting, but I might also find opportunities to connect with somebody else. And this happened to me recently around um, coyote shooting contests in Ontario. Um, not a fan of coyote contests. Totally fine with coyote hunting. I wear coyote fur on coats. I just don't like the presentation of hunting as a contest, as a killing contest. I found myself having a lot in common with other people, both hunters and non-hunters, who also don't like the idea of a killing contest. I'm still going to advocate for legally legal and regulated coyote hunting in Ontario, but I've now connected also with other folks who who were looking they were they were looking for hunters to say that they also don't agree with that method of it. And we found that connection. So it's coming back to what you were saying, right? That I think, you know, I, I think that we, I think that we take on, um, we take on our, our role and our responsibility in conservation um, really profoundly, profoundly. But I think that we also, I don't want that to kind of cloud us or from finding uh, connections with others who also feel like they're taking on a big role in conservation. You know? Yeah, we. Uh... It sounds like that's 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 a bit of the backcountry hunter and angler model that you you just described there, which is great. Um, and it sounds like it's it is important for us to have these conversations because not only do we get clear on it ourselves, but it it helps make ourselves more accountable, but also those that we reach out to more accountable, the politicians and whoever we might yeah. be advocating to. Um, when we have a clear picture of what's actually at stake, I feel, and where we stand on things, it makes it that much more easier to advocate for things such as conservation mm -hmm. and, uh, and wildlife impact. And on the flip side, you're saying too, just because you disagree with someone or their methods, um, we still need to hold their humanity in there and like relate to each other because at the end of the day, that's kind of where we are. We're coming to together because we love hunting as a whole or we love fishing. Um, we love the outdoors. Um, so let's, let's draw on that and not necessarily get um stuck forever in like the 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 minutia of how we how we do it and also not confuse the minutia with the with the big picture right that because yep. someone doesn't like a certain uh, method a certain strategy whatever the case is that doesn't mean that they are throwing out the whole picture right totally yeah and so you've been you've been blogging for what five years now you said Something like that, five or six years, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, I got, go. I got. To, people didn't want to hear me ramble on anymore, like this. So I finally just started hammering <laughs> it out in written form. <laughs> we we could have put you on some AM radio channel, I'm sure, and just gave you an hour <laughs> at three in the morning and just <laughs> yeah. 
Paul's hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, but honestly, from what I've seen from the blog, and this is this is no uh, this is no plug. You you're kind of like taking not only are you taking like leading edge stuff and analyzing it, but you you've kind of like crept into my head in some ways and like voiced things that I've been mulling over for decades, right? About like our obligation to ourselves as hunters. How do we interact as a community? Should I kill that thing? Yeah. Um, like these are all questions that I've had. So I, I appreciate your blog for making, maybe not making things clearer, but um, <laughs> giving me something to bounce my thoughts off of, you know. No, I appreciate I, that. And I, I try to emphasize that too, right? There's no, I don't, there's no original thoughts and I don't, um, I don't rush to like, you know, beat people to the finish line on on an on an issue because I like, go oh, like, I'm just I, there's no there's I I feel like there's I'm not having anything original at this point. I just sort of try to pull things together for myself and 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 I have found more often than not, yeah, that there's stuff to talk about with people when you do that. Um, so I appreciate that. What's next for the blog? Because uh, there's a. Uh you kind of worked your way through a bit of uh, some of the trophy hunting stuff here, but like uh, I'm sure there's no shortage of like kind of ethical paradigms or uh, you know, kind of things to get hung up on in the, in the hunting world. Like what's, what do you, what can we look forward to? Yeah. I've got um, a notebook that's just full of either titles or topics that I scribble down. Um, I, I like, uh, you know, one of the things someone asked me recently, like what is it about hunting? Right. And I think um, in a, uncharacteristically short answer to the question i go there's just no other thing that i do in my life that hits every single part of my life that no matter what i'm doing no matter what i'm thinking about no matter what i'm talking about or needing to get grapple with i can kind of think about that thing through the lens of, of hunting fishing trapping all those things and that's what really holds me to it so i think in terms of what's next i that's this is what this is why i like it is because you can go from everything from um, you know, the minute laws and regulations around hunting to these sort of big meandery thoughts around um, around things that we've been talking about right now. Around like, well, what is the what is the value of hunters being more open to internal debate within our own community? There's no answer to that question. There's no clear, objective answer to that question, and that's something I really like to explore. So that's a, that's one that that I'll hit on at some point. Um, is, you know, should we as hunters embrace this internal sort of debate or do we need to not? Um, and then I, and then I, I also, um, you know, I also, I'm trying to get to explore more issues around, around the continent, around the country as well, more specific conservation topics. Cool. Awesome. I thought I, I answered that internal debate one, but you know, uh, that's okay. I'll let you write a blog post on it. It's not a big deal. <laughs> Hit me with your, uh, just send me some notes so that I have them to, <laughs> to steal from you. Then, uh. well, we'll send you the transcript from this uh, this podcast. You could just yeah. pluck it from there. Um, I, I got a couple more for you here, Paul, before we let, let you mm -hmm. go here. Um, but like, and I'm interested because I think you came to hunting from a different perspective than myself and Chase did. Chase and I were, were kind of born into it and like had it grown up the entire way. Um, but to me, there seems to be something about hunting and fishing, more so hunting, though, that people seem to identify with it much more than a lot of other activities in my mind. Like it, it's it like lifestyle is not a word that I would use lightly, but like it really ingrains itself into your life in this like um, almost you can't construe your life any other way. 
Um, what is it about, do you think, hunting that has that effect on people that it's not just kind of like a hobby that you, that's easy to pick up and drop at kind of a whim, like checkers or something? Yeah, I know it is. It's, it's consuming that way. Right. And that's, I think what I was sort of saying there was that, um, I don't think that there are a lot of other activities where when you want to understand deeply ethical issues, you're going to run into those issues, whatever they are at some point in your hunting journey in your, in, or in hunting, right? When you want to figure out, um, when you want to do, just do something like get outside, you can do that if you're hunting. And I think that there are not a lot of other activities, whether that's checkers or, or um, tennis or whatever, that, um, that, that'll, that both force and allow us to explore just about every element of life that we're going to need to, to get through this thing. Um, and I think that's probably what consumes people. And I know it was for me um, is I had all kinds of hobbies um, and those hobbies, when I, when I turned them off, I didn't, I didn't continue to understand life and death and, and love and all these other parts of life through checkers. But I certainly was able to explore those things through hunting in some way. Right. Uh, and I think that that's, to me, I think that's, that's probably what does it for a lot of people is, is um, they start to, they don't just learn about, it's, they don't just come to learn about hunting by doing hunting. They use hunting to also learn about a whole lot of other things in life that they had not found necessarily a way to explore through, uh, through what they thought was just a hobby or, or just an activity. Um, you know, and, and I mean, we, we, that, that's everything. People, people come to understand religion through hunting and, and like I say, come to terms with, with death through hunting and all these parts of life that we just don't get to explore. And, and I think ground ourselves through any of their activities in the same way. Yeah. And it's just a lot of fun too. I think that's the other thing is, and, <laughs> I, and that's, and I, I love to have these huge, deep cavernous conversations around it. But at the end of the day, it's also just tons of fun. And I brought people out hunting for the first time and they, you know, they shoot a gun for the first time, they shoot a bow and arrow for the first time, or they, or they kill, and it's just like, it's just a lot of fun, and it's, and it's not about people loving killing, it's not, right, it's, people love to eat the things that they bring home, they love to eat the things anyone else brings home, they love to go outside, they love to see wildlife, and I think that that's just the other big part of it, is that we just um, invite someone hunting with you, anyone who doesn't hunt, invite them out with you. I just did that recently with somebody, I said, you know, you, I'll invite you out and I won't pull the trigger if you're not comfortable with it. We'll do everything right up to that point. And I would promise not to pull, not to pull a trigger if you're not comfortable with it, because I think that there's so much else that, that they'll enjoy doing, you know? So. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you touched on something too, that pops up for me when, when it comes to hunting it too, is it's that relationship to food. And it's such a, I think it's, intrinsic to humans to be motivated and tied to food and think thinking about it always but it seems like because I, I garden too so i was thinking about like well what's the difference between gardening and hunting then i'm not you know i i don't always get super jacked up to go weed for example but <laughs> like if, if if i was gonna go hang a tree stand in the bush i'm normally pretty happy about that so like what's the difference there and it's like i think the difference is that like there's this payoff especially like in big game hunting like with moose it's almost like a like a roller coaster ride or something. Like everything yeah. happens all at once. Like, could you imagine harvesting your crop? Like all the carrots just all of a sudden just appeared in front of you and you now have to like tackle them or something like that. But like, you had to wait and wait and wait yeah. and st stare at the dirt. 
for (laughs) weeks and months before it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. I hadn't, I wonder that too, sometimes, um, what, what it is. And, and, uh, yeah, you get into this thing, right. Where you like, uh, man, maybe I am just this bloodthirsty maniac. And then you're like, no, there's more to it. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there is something about the, like, yeah, the slow, the anticipation and the uncertainty around it. Um, and hey, like that's not to say that you don't enjoy pulling carrots out of the ground. It's just a different kind of enjoyment. And I think mm-hmm. that that's the other thing is let's not put these things on a on a hierarchy. But at the same time, if we're talking about like the rush of something, yeah, then there's no question about it. If you talk, if you want to talk about the, you know, the satisfaction that comes from a slow nurture of uh, a piece of dirt, then yeah, your carrots are probably going to win that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Different different stakes for sure. But I've never yeah. lost sleep over a carrot. I've lost sleep over my uh, thinking of that elk bugling in the bush and I, how close we were and uh, didn't connect. Um, yeah. Paul, I got one more for you here, Chase, unless you want to hop in with anything. No, you get, you guys give her, man. <laughs> okay. 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 And Paul, this might be a bit of a personal bond, but would you die for a deer? If it came to that. <laughs> You nailed it, buddy. Do you want to explain that one for our listeners? Um, yeah, so I actually heard this this clip from a book. I, I think it was something I heard Stephen Ranella say many years ago when I first started getting into listen to him. But it, but it comes from um, a writer named Thomas McGuane. And uh, he um, really cool writer. He's a great writer who, who I think somewhat similar to, to David Peterson, who I mentioned earlier, they, they do a great job of going back and forth between just straight up hunting stories and then these super poignant dives into into the meaning of hunting. Um, and in, in this particular passage by Thomas McGuane, um, he says to a, he's kind of imagining a conversation, right? And he says, that the hunter, the, the non-hunter says to the hunter, you know, well, why do you, like, why do you, why would you, why do you have to kill deer? Like, why should deer die for you? Um, would you die for a deer? And the hunter says, "Ah, yeah, it came to that." And I think it's just great. I think it's such a great. But the other part of that, the other part of that passage is the um, the hunter at one point says to the this hypothetical imaginary non-hunter, he says, "I can't talk to you about, about about it this way." And I think that that's part of the conversation that I also really love, and it goes right back to one of the first things we were talking about around um, sort of stripping back the assumptions in the conversation, and the hunter saying, "You're asking the wrong question. I can't I can't answer it that way because." I can't fully articulate what it is I'm thinking and feeling just by answering that question. We have to, we have to pull back the layers. Um, so yeah, that, that passage I think is fantastic. And I think it speaks to the um, so many parts of hunting around our devo- devotion to the, the species and the population and the landscape and the habitat and not just the individual. Um, but that's not at all in any way to, to diminish the connection we have with that individual animal we shoot. And I think that's something we have to emphasize is that while as hunters, we think about the herd and the population and the, the habitat and the landscape, we also think and connect very deeply to the individual that we shoot in a way that that is, that is just in a lot of cases um, unparalleled. Right. Yeah. I, I found that just to be a profound quote and uh, just, help like in, in two or three sentences totally clarified kind of what was at stake um, when we're talking about conservation it's we're talking about um, the whole health of an ecosystem and 
I'm part of that ecosystem. So if, if it's my time to bite the dirt, then uh, so be it. <laughs> but um, it's your time to become carrot fertilizer. Then, yeah. Then, yeah, totally. So I've heard of that Thomas McGuane guy before, but who was that Stefan Ranella guy that you had mentioned? Stephen Ranella, so have you? Just kidding, Paul. Running, running no, but, on the but, but it does happen though. People like I, uh, people are like, oh, I came across this show on Meat Eater or on Netflix, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I saw I saw Meat Eater hit the TikTok, and uh, it was like the clash of two worlds. Like there was just this uh, maybe folks who haven't been exposed to that show before were just like in awe of what Steve and his crew were doing on an average Saturday. I think they were like skinning out a beaver or something like that, and they were just like like actually on TikTok, like the, the yeah the yeah, app. yeah yeah oh really yes. oh my god like I don't think Steve personally has an account that's uh, yeah that's flipping through there, but there's, they probably pay someone to, to that's be on the, yeah. the, I don't, I'm not on the TikTok. I'm not that, uh, I'm not that hip. <laughs> I don't even have Facebook anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the perils of the, the social media. And maybe that's, that's a conversation for another podcast, but, um, just want to thank you deeply for having you on here, Paul, uh, uh, big fan of the blog and the, I feel like the conversation didn't disappoint here either. So, Thanks for coming on. Thanks for all you do with your writing and uh, and and your work in the professional world too. We didn't even touch on that really. Yeah. No. Thanks a lot for you guys, man. Like, I uh, it's it's I think it's really cool to have a, a platform where you can just kind of patiently explain it and go through them and not and not uh, not have to just pigeonhole yourselves into one area of this. And I think that that's super special and uh, and represents the hunting world and um, the hunting conversation really well. So I definitely commend you both on on that commitment and just going through all these topics that you guys address and these conversations and stuff. It's, um, it's not, a, it's not a, a way of approaching this, but I think it's not the norm and it's not one that is the easiest way to do it. So I, I really appreciate you guys reaching out. And, uh, for all the listeners out there, yes, I am still here. Um, <laughs> but there were definitely something special happened in the conversation with Tristan and Paul here. And I'm, 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 uh, thrilled that I got a front row seat to the entire thing. And, uh, Paul, the the conversation you had today, and uh, and everything you said is is just like uh, I, I think is going to change a lot of people's conversations around hunting. It's certainly going to change the way I approach conversations uh, around hunting, whether that's with hunters or non hunters. Um, definitely going to read into your blog a little bit, a lot more. And uh, one last question I want to kind of throw to you, and you've talked about a lot of books that you've been reading and you try and read every morning for about an hour. What are your top three books that you'd recommend to outdoors men or women? Mm. So uh, right off the bat, a book called heart's blood by David Peterson um, and heart's blood in that case is all one word um, heart's blood. Yeah. David Peterson, he's incredible. Um, and so heart's blood has been one that I've, I, when I started reading that, I, I sort of deliberately kept putting it down and picking it back up because I just didn't want the book to end. And I read it, I read it over the course of two or three years because I just couldn't, I couldn't finish it. I did, I could finish it. I didn't want to finish it. That'd be number one. Um, I'll, and uh, there's a book um, called The Invention of Nature 
by a German uh, historian named Andrea Wolf. Her last name was W-U-L-F. Um, the Invention of Nature is about a, um, I'm sorry, she's not German. The book is about a German um, a naturalist and scientist uh, named Alexander von Humboldt, who uh, traveled around the world in the kind of early 1800s. Um, and he, he was really instrumental to expressing what we now, how we now think about the concept of ecology and conservation. So that'd be number two. Um, number three, um, yeah, number three, I, uh, I'll, I'll kind of go out a little bit to left field, and uh, um, there's a book called Ishmael by uh, Daniel Quinn. It's a fiction um, and not something that we might immediately think of as a, as a hunting and conservation book, but uh, the stuff that they talk about and they explore in that book, um, it's definitely informed how I think about hunting and conservation. Um, and then I'm just going to, I'm just going to force a fourth one in if you don't mind, but uh, um, I, uh, that guy, Stefan Ranella, I read his book, uh, <laughs> I read his book, American Buffalo many, many years ago. Um, and I love that book. Um, it was before I was really watching, knew a lot about the show me eater. I read his book, that book, and it was great. So American Buffalo. That's the thing that strikes me about Steve always is like, um, he comes off as just like this everyday dude in, in the meat eater series, but he's backed by like this, he's got his masters and well, I can't even, it was American history or something. Like he's got like, yeah. just, he's just steeped in literature for, um, for like both conservation and the history of the state. So like, I think it, it kind of just, it, it kind of seeps out of him as he does his show, I think. Oh yeah, totally. It, it's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. The writing is good. I think I think the part about Steve Rinella, especially reading the uh, the American Buffalo book, uh, for me is like because I always viewed him as this this uh, massive, just a brilliant brilliant dude. But like when you read into some of the things that he does in that book and some of the stuff you see on the show is just like shit. This guy's making some of the poor decisions that I would have made in that same scenario. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. So that's kind of yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing, right? Is like you can have all these big, deep conversations around hunting, and then and then once in a while, you just you just go out and fall into a cold river, and uh, yeah. that's what you're dealing with in that moment, not the big ethical conversations. It's <laughs> yeah. just that. So yeah, that's uh, that's for sure. Yeah. Maybe all the real learned hunters are at the bottom of a cold river, and uh, it's just the ones that are <laughs> sure, <laughs> the yeah. planet safer around to talk about it. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Well, thanks again, Paul. Uh, we wish you well with the blog, and I th I think there's lots for us to follow up on if uh, if we ever connect again. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Hope hope winter ends there for you out east pretty soon, and uh, stay warm. Otherwise. Thanks a lot, guys. We'll talk soon. So that's it. That's uh, hope, hopefully not the end, but that's the end of our conversation today with Paul McCartney. Uh We thank Paul for coming on. We also thank Paul for contributing to the conversation of conservation and what is hunting uh, when it, it comes to Canada here and uh, larger, right, North America. Um, but before we head off, maybe we should make note of uh, how things are going in the store and uh, things that we can look forward to here coming into spring. Yeah, I got some uh, some information for you guys here. Anybody that's listening, 
we have our store is basically fully stocked, like I've mentioned, I think, in the last episode. But we also got some new decals. The decals are in. We've got black, we've got white, and we've got our kind of a new logo style decal as well that can basically go on anything. Um, but yeah, go to our store. It's www.panoramicoutdoors.com. You can go on there and you can check out all our sweaters. If you have any questions about sizing or fittings or whatever it may be, um, just give us a DM or send us an email and we'll be more than happy to help you out wherever we can. The other thing I'm going to mention to you guys, uh, we had Buffalo Moto send us some gloves and I just wanted to get a quick kind of maybe thought on what you guys thought of them. Um, I know I got my pair there. Um, I thought they were very well made and they, they almost have like a burnt in logo of our logo on the on the not the palm but like the what is it called top side the hand top hand side the the back of your hand back of your hand there you go you're gonna get a back in here right away but and uh so yeah i really like the gloves what do you guys think of them i've always bought like the seven dollar six dollar canadian tire special and try to get away with that i was i'm so far i'm shocked with the quality of these gloves like they look like they could go through like a meat grinder and still hold their their integrity so i'm looking forward to putting through them through the test but it's uh it's the the quality is almost like you notice it instantaneously i would say so i was very thankful for those gloves i was not expecting them they're pretty awesome so i would encourage folks to check them out yeah 100 man those gloves are awesome they're uh obviously extreme extremely well crafted and they're um he's obviously uh, tapping into the uh, the uh, fashionable side of of gloves, they are far more better looking than my typical blue and yellow uh, uh, gloves that I've that I've been wearing for the uh, you know for the winter. And uh, so it's beyond you know having a, a nice looking glove and a well crafted one, I, I think these are going to be uh, a set of gloves that we're going to be wearing for for quite a while here. So pretty pumped about that yeah it's buffalo moto you guys want to check them out check them out on instagram uh facebook you can google them i don't i don't know what chase said because it like froze there for a second and this is the, the things we got to deal with with doing these uh remote podcasts but if you did say this i'll say it again they're made out of buffalo leather um they're sourced here right in manitoba but you can get them for anything they're actually made for motorcycles riders like motorcyclists <laughs> riders Oh, man, I'm struggling. But, yeah, check them out, Buffalo Moto on the Internet. But other than that, yeah, that's the that's my kind of little wrap-up on the store. We don't really have too much, um, too many new things right now, but a lot of things coming. we got some men's tanks coming out. We're also looking at some maybe accessories for old Willie Dog, so we might have a few extra pieces for that. We, and we're also looking at some kids' uh, options too. So if you are, have some kids or have some nieces and nephews or whoever is in your life and you're thinking that maybe – getting them a panoramic piece let us know because it's going to influence us to push this a little bit harder and talk to our um, clothing people to get this done so awesome and on my end here um because i know you guys aren't sick of hearing me talk yet i just want to say for those of you that still are hanging around listening thank you go to whatever platform you're listening to hit that uh hit that like button hit that subscribe Give us a, a five-star rating. Give us a leave us a comment. Let us know how we're doing, and uh, certainly thanks again for listening and choosing our podcast. And that's it for tonight, folks. Make sure you keep your powder dry, 
your line's tight and an edge on your knife. Have a good night, all.